Section 11 of At a Winter's Fire This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org This recording by Philip Aldred in Nottingham, UK At a Winter's Fire by Bernard Capes an eddy on the floor part three ill and shaken and for the time little in love with life yet fearing death as i had never dreaded it before i spent the rest of that horrible night huddled between my crumpled sheets fearing to look forth fearing to think wild only to be far away to be housed in some green and innocent hamlet where i might forget the madness and the terror in learning to walk the unvexed paths of placid souls i had not fairly knocked under until alone with my new dread familiar that unction i could lay to my heart at least i had done the manly part by the stricken warder whom i had attended to his own home in a row of little tenements that stood south of the prison walls i had replied to all inquiries with some dignity and spirit attributing my ruffled condition to an assault on the part of johnson when he was already under the shadow of his seizure i had directed his removal and grudged him no professional attention that it was in my power to bestow but afterwards locked into my room my whole nervous system broke up like a trodden ant-hill leaving me conscious of nothing but aimless scurrying terror and the black swarm of thoughts so that i verily fancied my reason would give under the strain yet i had more to endure and to triumph over near morning i fell into a troubled sleep throughout which the drawn twitch of muscle seemed an accent on every word of ill omen i had ever spelt out of the alphabet of fear if my body rested my brain was an open chamber for any toad of ugliness that listed to sit or squat in suddenly i woke to the fact that there was a knocking at my door that there had been for some time i cried come in finding a weak restorative in the mere sound of my own human voice then remembering the key was turned bade the visitor wait until i could come to him scrambling feeling dazed and white-livered out of bed i opened the door and met one of the warders on the threshold the man looked scared and his lips i noticed were set in a somewhat boding fashion can you come at once sir he said there's something wrong with the governor wrong what's the matter with him why he looked down rubbed an imaginary protuberance smooth with his foot and glanced up at me again with a quick furtive expression he's got his face set in the grating of forty-seven and danged if a man jack of us can get him to move or speak i turned away feeling sick 
I hurriedly pulled on my coat and trousers, and went off with my summoner. Reason was all absorbed in a wildest fantasy of apprehension. Who found him? I muttered as we sped on. Vokin seem him go down the corridor about half after eight, sir, and see him give a start like when he noticed the trap open. It's never been so before in my time. Johnson must have done it last night before he were took. Yes, yes. The man said the governor went to shut it, it seemed, and to draw his face towards the bars in so doing. Then he seed him a-looking through, as he thought, but naturally it weren't no of his business, and he went off about his work. But when he come anigh again fifteen minutes later, there were the governor in the same position, and he got scared over it and called out one or two of us. Why didn't one or two of you ask the major if anything was wrong? Bless you, we did, and no answer, and we pulled him compatible with discipline, but... But what? He's stuck. Stuck? See for yourself, sir. That's all I ask. I did. A moment later, a little group was collected about the door of cell 47 and the members of it spoke together in whispers, as if they were frightened men. One young fellow, with a face white in patches, as if it had been flowered, slid from them as I approached, and accosted me tremulously. Don't go an eye, sir. There's something wrong about the place. I pulled myself together, forcibly beating down the excitement reawakened by the associations of the spot. In the discomfiture of others' nerves, I found my own restoration. Don't be an ass, I said, in a determined voice. There's nothing here that can't be explained. Make way for me, please. They parted and let me through, and as I saw him, he stood spruce, frock-coated, dapper, as he always was, with his face pressed against and into the grill, and either hand raised and clenched tightly round the bars of the trap. His posture was as of one caught and striving frantically to release himself, yet the narrowness of the interval between the rails precluded so extravagant an idea. He stood quite motionless, taut and on the strain, as it were, and nothing of his face was visible but the back ridges of his jawbones, showing white through a bush of red whiskers. "'Major Shrike!' I rapped out, and, allowing myself no hesitation, reached forth my hand and grasped his shoulder. The body vibrated under my touch, but he neither answered nor made sign of hearing me. Then I pulled at him forcibly, and ever with increasing strength, his fingers held like steel braces. He seemed glued to the trap, like Theseus to the rock. Hastily I peered round to see if I could get glimpse of his face. I noticed enough to send me back with a little stagger. "'Has none of you got the key to this door?' I asked, reviewing the scared faces around me, that which my own was no less troubled, I feel sure." "'Only the governor, sir,' said the warder who had fetched me. 
there's not a man but him amongst us that ever seen this opened he was wrong there i could have told him but held my tongue for obvious reasons i want it opened will one of you feel in his pockets not a soul stirred even had not sense of discipline precluded that of a certain inhuman atmosphere made fearful creatures of them all then said i i must do it myself i turned once more to the stiff-strung figure had actually put hand on it when an exclamation from vokins arrested me there's a key there sir he said sticking out yonder between his feet sure enough there was johnson's no doubt that had been shot from its socket by the clapping of the door and afterwards kicked aside by the warder in his convulsive struggles i stooped only too thankful for the respite and drew it forth i had seen it but once before yet i recognized it at a glance now i confess my heart felt ill as i slipped the key in the wards and a sickness of resentment at the tyranny of fate in making me its helpless minister surged up in my veins once with my fingers on the iron loop i paused and ventured a fearful side glance at the figure whose crooked elbow almost touched my face and then strung to the high pitch of inevitability i shot the lock pushed at the door and in the act made a back leap into the corridor scarcely in doing so did i look for the totter and collapse outwards of the rigid form i had expected to see it fall away face down into the cell as its support swung from it yet it was i swear as if something from within had relaxed its grip and given the dreadful man a swinging push outwards as the door opened it went on its back with a dusty slap on the stone flags and from all its spectators me included came a sudden drawn sound like wind in a keyhole what can i say or how describe it a dead thing it was but the face barred with livid scars where the grating rails had crossed it the rest seemed to have been worked and kneaded into a mere featureless plate of yellow and expressionless flesh and it was this i had seen in the glass there was an interval following the experience above narrated during which a certain personality that had once been mine was effaced or suspended and i seemed a passive creature innocent of the least desire of independence it was not that i was actually ill or actually insane a merciful providence set my finer wits slumbering that was all leaving me a sufficiency of the grosser faculties that were necessary to the right ordering of my behaviour i kept to my room it is true and even lay a good deal in bed but this was more to satisfy the busy scruples of a locum tenens a practitioner of the neighbourhood who came daily to prison to officiate in my absence than to cosset a complaint that in its inactivity was purely negative 
i could review what had happened with a calmness as profound as if i had read it in a book i could have wished to continue my duties indeed had the power of insistence remained to me but the saner medicus was acute where i had gone blunt and bade me to the restful course he was right i was mentally stunned and had i not slept off my lethargy i should have gone mad in an hour leapt at a bound probably from inertia to flaming lunacy i remembered everything but through a fluffy atmosphere so to speak it was as if i looked on bygone pictures through ground glass that softened the ugly outlines sometimes i referred to these to my substitute who was wise to answer me according to my mood for the truth left me unruffled whereas an obvious evasion of it would have distressed me hammond i said one day i have never yet asked you how did i give my evidence at the inquest like a doctor and a sane man that's good but it was a difficult course to steer you conducted the post-mortem did any peculiarity in the dead man's face strike you nothing but this that the excessive contraction of the bicepital muscles had brought the features into such forcible contact with the bars as to cause bruising and actual abrasion he must have been dead some time when you found him and nothing else you noticed nothing else in his face a sort of obliteration of what makes one human i mean oh dear no nothing but the painful constriction that marks any ordinary fatal attack of angina pectoris there's a rum breach of the promise case in the papers today you should read it it'll make you laugh i had no more inclination to laugh than to sigh but accepted the change of subject with an equanimity now habitual to me one morning i sat up in bed and knew that consciousness was wide awake in me once more i had slept and now rose refreshed but trembling looking back all in a flutter of new responsibility along the misty path by way of which i had recently loitered i shook with some awful thankfulness at the sight of the pitfalls i had skirted and escaped of the demons my witlessness had baffled the joy of life was in my heart again but chastened and made pitiful by experience hammond noticed the change in me directly he entered and congratulated me upon it go slow at first old man he said you've fairly sloughed the old skin but give the sun time to toughen the new one walk in it at present and be content i was in great measure and i followed his advice i got leave of absence and ran down for a month in the country to a certain house we knew of where kindly ministrations to my convalescence was only one of the many blisses to be put to an account of rosy days then did my love awake 
most like a lily flower and as the lovely queen of heaven so shone she in her bower ah me ah me when was it a year ago or two-thirds of a lifetime alas age with stealing steps hath clawed me with his crouch and will the yews root in my heart i wondered i was well sane recovered when one morning towards the end of my visit i received a letter from hammond enclosing a packet addressed to me and jealously sealed and fastened my friend's communication ran as follows there died here yesterday afternoon a warder johnson he who had that apoplectic seizure you will remember the night before poor shrike's exit i attended him to the end and being alone with him an hour before the finish he took the enclosed from under his pillow and a solemn oath from me that i would forward it direct to you sealed as you will find it and permit no other soul to examine or even touch it i acquit myself of the charge but my dear fellow with an uneasy sense of the responsibility i incur in thus possibly suggesting to you a retrospect of events which you had much best consigned to the limbo of the not unexplicable but not worth trying to explain it was patent from what i had gathered that you were in an overstrung and excitable condition at that time and that your temporary collapse was purely nervous in its character it seems there was some nonsense abroad in the prison about a certain cell and that there were fools who thought fit to associate johnson's attack and the other's death with the opening of that cell's door i have given the new governor a tip and he has stopped all that we have examined the cell in company and found it as one might suppose a very ordinary chamber the two men died perfectly natural deaths and there is the last to be said on the subject i mention it only from the fear that enclosed may contain some allusion to the rubbish a perusal of which might check the wholesome convalescence of your thoughts if you take my advice you will throw the packet into the fire unread at least if you do examine it postpone the duty till you feel yourself absolutely impervious to any mental trickery and bear in mind that you are a worthy member of a particularly matter-of-fact and unemotional profession i smiled at the last clause for i was now in a condition to feel a rather warm shame over my erst weak-kneed collapse before a sheet and an illuminated turnip i took the packet to my bedroom shut the door and sat myself down by the open window the garden lay below me and the dewy meadows beyond in the one bees were busy ruffling the ruddy gillyflowers and april stocks in the other the hedge twigs were all frosted with merry buds 
as if spring had brushed them with the fleece of her wings in passing. I fetched a sigh of content as I broke the seal of the packet, and brought out the enclosure. Somewhere in the garden a little sardonic laugh was clipped to silence. It came from groom or maid, no doubt, yet it thrilled me with an odd feeling of uncanniness, and I shivered slightly. Bah, I said to myself, determinedly, there is a shrewd nip in the wind, for all the show of sunlight. And I rose, pulled down the window, and resumed my seat. Then in the closed room that had become deathly quiet by contrast, I opened and read the dead man's letter. Sir, I hope you will read what I here put down. I lay it on you as a solemn injunction, for I am a dying man, and I know it. And to who is my death due, and the governor's death, if not you, for your prying and curiosity, as surely as if you had drove a knife through our hearts? Therefore I say, read this, and take my burden from me, for it has been a burden, and now it is right that you that interfered should have it on your own mortal shoulders. The Major is dead, and I am dying, and in the first of my fit it went on in my head, like symbols that the trap was left open, and that if he passed he would look in, and it would get him. For he knew not fear, neither would he submit to bullying by God or devil. Now I will tell you the truth, and heaven quit you of your responsibility in our destruction. There wasn't another man to me, like the governor, in all the countries of the world. Once he brought me to life after doctors had given me up for dead, but he willed it, and I lived and ever afterwards I loved him as a dog loves its master. That was in the Punjab, and I came home to England with him, and was his servant when he got his appointment to the jail here. I tell you he was a proud and fierce man, but under control and tender to those he favoured. And I will tell you also a strange thing about him. Though he was a soldier and an officer, and strict in discipline, as made men fear and admire him, his heart at bottom was all for books, and literature, and such like gentle crafts. I had his confidence, as a man gives his confidence to his dog, and before me sometimes he unbent, as he never would before others. In this way I learned the bitter sorrow of his life, he had once hoped to be a poet, acknowledged as such before the world. He was by nature an idealist, as they call it, and God knows what it meant to him to come out of the woods, so to speak, and sweat in the dust of cities. But he did it, for his will was of tempered steel. He buried his dreams in the clouds, and came down to earth greatly resolved, but with one undying hate. It is not good to hate as he could, and worse to be hated by such as him. 
and I will tell you the story and what it led to. It was when he was a subaltern that he made up his mind to the plunge. For years he had placed all his hopes and confidence in a book of verses he had wrote, and added to, and improved during the time. A little encouragement, a little word of praise was all he looked for, and then he was ready to buckle to again, profiting by advice, and do better. He put all the love and beauty of his heart into that book, and at last, after doubt and anguish and much diffidence, he published it and gave it to the world. Sir, it fell what they call stillborn from the press. It was like a green leaf fluttering down in a dead wood. To a proud and hopeful man bubbling with music, the pain of neglect, when he come to realise it, was terrible. But nothing was said, and there was nothing to say. In silence he had to endure and suffer. But one day, during manoeuvres, there came to the camp a grey-faced man, a newspaper correspondent, and young Shrike knocked up a friendship with him. Now how it come about I cannot tell, but so it did that this skip-kennel wormed the lad's sorrow out of him, and his confidence swore he'd been damnedly used, and that when he got back he'd crack up the book himself in his own paper. He was a fool for his pains, and a serpent in his cruelty. The notice came out as promised, and, my God, the author was laughed and mocked at from beginning to end. Even confidences he had given to the creature was twisted to his ridicule, and his very appearance joked over. And the mess got wind of it, and made a rare story for the dog days. He bore it like a soldier, and that he became heart and liver for the moment. But he put something to the account of the grey-faced man, and locked it up in his breast. He come across him again years afterwards in India, and told him very politely that he hadn't forgotten him, and didn't intend to. But he was anigh losing sight of him there was for ever and a day, for the creature took cholera, or what looked like it, and rubbed shoulders with death and the devil before he pulled through. And he come across him again over here, and that was the last of him as you shall see presently. Once after I knew the Major, he was captain then, I was a brush in his coat, and he stood a long while before the glass. Then he twisted upon me with a smile on his mouth, and he says, The dog was right, Johnson. This isn't the face of a poet. I was a presumptuous ass, and born to cast up figures with a pen behind me ear. Captain, I says, if you were skinned, you'd look like any other man without his. The quality of a soul isn't expressed by a coat. Well, he answers, my soul's pretty clean swept, I think. 
save for one bluebeard chamber in it that's been kept locked ever so many years it's nice and dirty by this time i expect he says then the grin comes on his mouth again i'll open it one day he says and look there's something in it about comparing me to a dancing dervish with the wind in my petticoats perhaps i'll get the chance to set someone else dancing by and by he did and took it and the bluebeard chamber come to be opened in this very jail it was when the system was lined fallow so to speak that the prison was deserted nobody was there but him and me and the echoes from the empty courts the contract for restoration hadn't been signed and for months and more than a year we lay idle nothing being done near the beginning of this period one day comes from the third time of the major's seeing him the grey-faced man let bygones be bygones he says i was a good friend to you though you didn't know it and now i expect you're in the way to thank me i am said the major of course he answered where would be your fame and reputation as one of the leading prison reformers of the day if you had kept on in that rhyming nonsense have you come for my thanks says the governor i've come says the grey-faced man to examine and report upon your system for your paper possibly but to satisfy myself of its efficacy in the first instance you aren't commissioned then no i come on my own responsibility without consultation with anyone absolutely without i haven't even a wife to advise me he says with a yellow grin what once passed for cholera had set the bile on his skin like paint and he had caught a manner of coughing behind his hand like a toastmaster i know said the major looking him straight in the face that what you say about me and my affairs is sure to be actuated by conscientious motives ah he answers you're sore about that review still i see not at all said the major and in proof i invite you to be my guest for the night and to-morrow i'll show you over the prison and explain my system and the creature cried done and they set to and discussed jail matters in great earnestness i couldn't guess the governor's intentions but somehow his manner troubled me and yet i can remember only one point of his talk he were always dead against making public show of his birds they're there for reformation not ignominy he'd say prisons in the old days were often with the asylum and the workhouse made the holiday show-places of towns i've heard of one justice of the peace up north who to save himself trouble used to sign a lot of blank orders for leave to view so that applicants needn't bother him when they wanted to go over they've changed all that and the governor were instrumental in that change it's against my rule he said that night 
to exhibit to a stranger without a government permit. But seeing the place is empty, and for old remembrance sake, I'll make an exception in your favour. You shall learn all I can show you of the inside of a prison. Now this was natural enough, but I was uneasy. He treated his guest royally, so much that when we assembled the next morning for the inspection, the grey-faced man was shaky as a wet dog, but the major were all set prim and dry, like the soldier he was. We went straight away down the corridor B, and at cell 47 we stopped. We will begin our inspection here, said the governor. Johnson opened the door. I had the keys of the row, fitted in the right one, and pushed open the door. After you, said the major, and the creature walked in, and he shut the door on him. I think he smelt a rat at once, for he began beating on the wood and calling out to us, but the major only turned round to me with his face like a stone. Take that key from the bunch, he said, and give it to me. I obeyed, all in a tremble, and he took it and put it in his pocket. My God, Major, I whispered, what are you going to do with him? Silence, sir, he said. How dare you question your superior officer? And the noise inside grew louder. The governor, he listened to it a moment, like music. Then he unbolted and flung open the trap, and the creature's face came at it like a wild beast. Sir, said the major to it, you can't better understand my system than by experiencing it. What an article for your paper you could write already. Almost as pungent a one as that in which you ruined the hopes and prospects of a young cockney poet. The man mouthed at the bars. He was half mad, I think, in that one minute. Let me out, he screamed. This is a hideous joke. Let me out. When you are quite quiet, deathly quiet, said the Major, you shall come out. Not before. And he shut the trap in its face very softly. Come, Johnson, march, he said, and took the lead, and we walked out of the prison. I was like to faint, but I don't disobey, and the man's screeching followed us all down the empty corridors and halls until we shut the first great door on it. It may have gone on for hours alone in that awful emptiness. The creature was a reptile, but the thought sickened my heart. And from that hour till his death, five months later, he rotted and maddened in this dreadful tomb. There was more, but I pushed the ghastly confession from me at this point, in uncontrollable loathing and terror. Was it possible, possible that injured vanity could so falsify its victims every tradition of decency? Oh, I muttered, what a disease is ambition! 
who takes one step towards it puts his foot on Alcerat. It was minutes before my shocked nerves were equal to a resumption of the task, but at last I took it up again with a groan. I don't think at first I realised the full mischief the governor intended to do. At least I hope he only meant to give the man a good fright and then let him go. I might have known better. How could he ever release him without ruining himself? The next morning he summoned me to attend him. There was a strange new look of triumph in his face, and in his hand he held a heavy hunting crop. I pray to God he acted in madness, but my duty and obedience was to him. There is sport toward Johnson, he said. My dervish has got to dance. I followed him quiet. We listened when I opened the jail door, but the place was silent as the grave. But from the cell, when we reached it, came a low, whimpering sound. The governor slipped the trap and looked through. All right, he said, and put the key in the door, and flung it open. He was sitting crouched on the ground, and he looked up at us vacant-like. His face were all fallen down, as it were, and his mouth never ceased to shake and whisper. The Major shut the door and posted me in a corner. Then he moved to the creature with his whip. Up, he cried, up, you dervish, and dance for us. And he brought the thong with a smack across his shoulders. The creature leapt under the blow, and then to his feet with a cry, and the Major whipped him till he danced. All round the cell he drove him, lashing and cutting, and again, and many times again, until the poor thing rolled on the floor, whimpering and sobbing. I shall have to give an account of this some day. I shall have to whip my master with a red-hot serpent round the blazing furnace of the pit, and I shall do it with agony, because here my love and my obedience was to him. When it was finished, he bade me put down food and drink that I had brought with me, and come away with him, and we went, leaving him rolling on the floor of the cell, and shut him alone in the empty prison, until we should come again at the same time to-morrow. So day by day this went on, and the dancing three or four times a week, until at last the whip could be left behind, for the man would scream and begin to dance at the mere turning of the key in the lock, and he danced for four months, but not the fifth. Nobody official came near us all this time. The prison stood lonely as a deserted ruin where dark things have been done. Once, with fear and trembling, I asked my master how he would account for the inmate of 47 if he was suddenly called upon by authority to open the cell. And he answered, smiling, I should say 
it was my mad brother by his own account he showed me a brother's love you know it would be thought a liberty but the authorities i think would stretch a point for me but if i got sufficient notice i could clear out the cell i asked him how with my eyes rather than my lips and he answered me only with a look and all this time he was outside the prison living the life of a good man helping the needy ministering to the poor he even entertained occasionally and had more than one noisy party in his house but the fifth month the creature danced no more he was dumb a silent animal then with matted hair and beard and when one entered he would only look up at one pitifully as if to say my long punishment is nearly ended how it came that no inquiry was ever made about him i know not but none ever was perhaps he was one of the wandering gentry that nobody ever knows where they are next he was unmarried and had apparently not told of his intended journey to a soul and at the last he died in the night we found him lying stiff and stark in the morning and scratched with a piece of black crust on a stone of the wall these strange words an eddy on the floor just that nothing else then the governor came and looked down and was silent suddenly he caught me by the shoulder johnson he cried if it was to do again i would do it i repent of nothing but he has paid the penalty and we are quits may he rest in peace amen i answered low yet i knew our turn must come for this we buried him in quicklime under the wall where the murderers lie and i made the cell trim and rubbed out the writing and the governor locked it up and took away the key but he locked in more than he bargained for for months the place was left to itself and neither of us went an eye forty-seven then one day the workmen was to be put in and the major he took me round with him for a last examination of the place before they come he hesitated a bit outside a particular cell but at last he drove in the key and kicked open the door my god he says he's still dancing my heart was thumping i tell you as i looked over his shoulder what did we see what you well understand sir but for all it was no more than that we knew as well as if it was shouted in our ears that it was him dancing it went round the walls and drew towards us and as it stole near i screamed out 
an eddy on the floor, and seized and dragged the Major out and clapped the door behind us. Oh, I said, in another moment it would have had us. He looked at me gloomily. Johnson, he said, I am not to be frighted or coerced. He may dance, but he shall dance alone. Get the screwdriver and some screws and fasten up this trap. No one from this time looks into this cell. I did as he bid me, sweating. And I swear all the time I wrought, I dreaded a hand that would come through the trap and clutch mine. On one pretext or other from that day till the night you meddled with it, he kept that cell as close shut as a tomb, and he went his ways, discarding the past from that time forth. Now and again, an oversensitive prisoner in the next cell would complain of feeling uncomfortable. If possible, he would be removed to another. If not, he was damned for his fancies. And so it might be going on to now, if you hadn't pried and interfered. I don't blame you at this moment, sir. Likely you were an instrument in the hand of Providence, only as the instrument you must now take the burden of the truth on your own shoulders. I am a dying man, but I cannot die till I have confessed. Perhaps you may find it in your heart some day to give up a prayer for me. But it must be for the Major as well. Your obedient servant, J. Johnson What comment of my own can I append to this wild narrative? Professionally, and apart from personal experiences, I should rule it the composition of an epileptic. That a noted journalist, nameless as he was and is to me, however nomadic in habit, could disappear from human ken, and his fellows rest content to leave him unaccounted for seems a tax upon credulity so stupendous that i cannot seriously endorse the statement yet also there is that little matter of my personal experience end of section eleven